is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And we love telling immigrant stories here on this show. We've told so many. There are too many to mention. And one of our favorites was Horst Schultz's story, and he's the co-founder of the Ritz-Carlton an author of Excellence Wins, a no-nonsense guide to becoming the best in the world of compromise. And we were so blown away by the story and got such great feedback that we all wanted to hear more from Horst because he had so much wisdom to confer through his storytelling. And without further ado, here's Horst talking about how to live a life and giving advice in the end to so many of us who have kids and so many of us who are just stumbling through our own lives. Take it away, Horst. The key I try to give young people, I try to give my children and so on, you define yourself. If you, you, know, you know, forgive me anybody who, who does it, but let me tell you, if you, as a young man, spike your hair, a color green, and, and, and look like a bum, you're defining yourself as a bum, period. And, you know, forgive me, but that's a fact. You define yourself, and, and, and it's up to you what you define. I'm not, not telling you what you have to do, but understand, you define yourself every moment. I tell the story about the bank there in, in the book. It, 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 this was a traumatic moment. If you really think about it, and it's a true story, by the way, I lived in Chicago, and I knew the bank very well. They advertised. I've never been in a bank. But in the meantime, I was, have started here in Atlanta, and I was invited by them, by that bank, to talk to the 300 manager, and I'll forget it, about customer service, customer satisfaction, service. Got it the day before. Again, I knew them well. They advertised service all the time. But the day before, I thought, gee, I've never been in that bank. Tomorrow, somebody is bound to say, have you been in our bank? And I better be able to say yes. So I went to that bank. Now, walking into this, outside the building already, magnificent, stately, and, and you walk in, I mean, marble floor, marble pillars, you can feel the money all around you. It is very impressive, very... Wow, and all the way over there, a long counter to tell us, and in front of the maze. So I walk into the maze. Now, what is service? We have to establish here what is service. It starts with welcome, complying to the wishes, and farewell. That's service. Welcome, comply, farewell. What's the expectation of the customer when they come by anything? We must understand that. You or I or anybody has the same subconscious expectation, no matter what you buy. If it is legal service or a bottle of water or a car or radio, you have the same subconscious expectations. You want no defect. You want your product to be right. You want timeliness. You don't want to wait for your bottle of water. You want it when you want it. And you want the people who give it to you to be nice to you. Those are the three things that I, so if, if, if I know as a business, this is what people expect from me, I build processes to deliver it. So I'm in, in, the, in the maze, not long, I'm timeliness now. I'm number one, I look left and somebody on the right screams, next, 
That was the first step of service. I come to her teller, was a woman, by the way, men are usually worse in service, was a lady. I, she, when, as I reached her teller, she looks down, finishes some transaction for one second or two. I see her face. I don't know her. She, she doesn't know me. But when she looked up, it was very clear that she hated me. And she said, yes. Yes. I said, just want to change $50. She actually sighed. And she said, 10, 20, 45, 50, next. And I look at my product. My change is a product. No defect. The timeliness was good, but the individual service was non-existent. What could she have done? She could have said, the next gentleman, please. Come to tell her, welcome, sir. How may I help you? Just want to change $50. That's my pleasure. 10, 12, 45, 50. Have a wonderful day. Bang. What happened to me? I was dissatisfied. I was a terrorist. The number two treatment, I would have been satisfied. It was fine. It wouldn't have cost her more. It wouldn't have done any harm. It would, it would have been so easy. Or there could have been a third way of serving me. She could have said, the next gentleman, please. When I come to a teller, ideally, she would have called me, welcome, Mr. Schulze. Now, in this case, she wouldn't know my name. I understand that. But that is the ideal service, personalized. Welcome, Mr. Schulze. How may I help you? Just want to change $50. Ideally, she would have said 10, 20, 45, and here are four coins, five coins, because I know you collect coins, individualized to me. Now that is great service. Then I would have moved immediately to a level of trust and loyalty. But what should she do? She did the first thing that I explained. She said, next. And she treated me as if she was angry that I was there. So what did I do? For the next 15 years, I used them for an example as, as lousy service. What happened here? She defined the bank. She defined her fellow workers. That can't happen. You can't let that happen in an organization. That one employee defines you. And, and, and I didn't say Susie mistreated me. I said that bank is a poor bank. So well said. And this goes for everything, whether you're representing your family, your company, your country. It matters how you present yourself. And it takes such a little bit more effort. But it's so different. It differentiates you from everyone else when you go that extra. Forget yard. I think what Horst is saying is go the extra mile. Heck, you're there anyway. Next. I also hate no problem. I ask somebody for something and they say, no problem. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know it was a problem. Um, never a thank you. Rarely eye contact. It's just remarkable. And that's spending $6 on a coffee for my little girl. No problem. Horst Schultz, his story, so many stories this man has. And his book, Excellence Wins, A No-Nonsense Guide to Becoming the Best in a world of compromise. These stories here on Our American Story.
Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And this next story comes to us from John Elfner. And he's a U.S. history teacher at Homewood Flossmoor High School, and that's in the south suburbs of Chicago. John is beginning his 20th year of teaching high school students, and that's no duck walk, folks, if you've raised them, if you've been around them, but it's also a joy. And today, he enlightens the rest of us. Friday night, we're in the south suburbs of Chicago. We're at a high school football game. The stands are packed, the students and fans are excited for the opening kickoff, and the marching band is playing the school's fight song. On the field is Coach Ted Venegas. Hey, Coach, who's your favorite president? Teddy Roosevelt's my favorite president because he saved football. That may seem like an odd claim, but Venegas is not just a coach. He's also a U.S. history teacher, and he knows the intimate connection between Teddy Roosevelt and football. You see, the modern game of football is nothing like the game in the early 1900s. The early game of football is a lot more like violent rugby than the game that we know today. You can see some of the early games on film, including what claims to be the first recorded game between Princeton and Yale. It's not much to look at. Just 11 burly guys wearing very little protective equipment slamming into each other on the line. On most plays, the ball carrier runs into the scrum, is attacked by the defense, which itself is being mauled by big offensive linemen, typically ending up in a very large pile of very large young men. Presuming no one is maimed on the play, all 22 players get up, go huddle, line up again, and set hike onto the next play. Historian Brian Ingracia, author of the book The Rise of the Gridiron University, Higher Education's Uneasy Alliance with Big-Time Football, talks about the early game of football. College athletes have figured out ways to win very, very efficiently, but also in ways that are very kind of boring and also very potentially dangerous. So you've got the flying wedge, which is a play where you've got, uh, you know, one player with a number of other players in front of him running down the field. And this can be very, very dangerous. And they used to refer to this kind of football for the forward pass as kind of five yards in a cloud of dust. And passing the ball was illegal. Every play was a running play. On most plays, the ball carrier ran straight through the middle of the line. Players and coaches began to figure out more effective ways to physically move bodies around to get their ball carrier through that line. But with limited rules and little regard for safety, the game got really rough. There's a very famous case in 1897 where a University of Georgia player named Richard Vaughn Gammon, he actually died in a game played in Atlanta between the University of Georgia and the University of Virginia. And there's a moment in 1897 where the state of Georgia came very, very close actually to outlawing college football. Not surprisingly, this collision of 22 players, play after play, led to frequent injuries, some of them fatal. Young men are dying on the field. Oftentimes when they are, it's traumatic brain injuries, concussions, spinal injuries. Sometimes they're, they die immediately on the field. Sometimes they might get injured and they might not die for another week or two weeks. There's this growing concern around the country that this game has become very violent and is killing these young men. And over the next decade, things got worse. In 1905 alone, 18 high school and college football players died while playing the game. Dozens of others were severely injured, and the rest were just happy to escape with their lives. The violence of the game was unacceptable. With America's young men dying and being maimed on the field, football became something that major universities could no longer tolerate or sponsor. Both Yale and Harvard were considering canceling their programs. But then an unlikely savior stepped in, President Teddy Roosevelt. Roosevelt was a fan of football. He saw it as a way to season young men. Roosevelt had wanted to play when he was a Harvard man, but his asthma kept him from being involved. He said of football, 
as in a football game. The principle to follow is, hit the line hard. Don't foul and don't shirk, but hit the line hard. His toughness is legendary. Teddy popularized the term, the strenuous life. He describes what he meant by that in an 1899 speech. I wish to preach not the doctrine of ignoble ease, but the doctrine of the strenuous life. The life of toil and effort, of labor and strife. I preach to you then, my countrymen, that our country calls not for the life of ease, but for the life of strenuous endeavor. And this was more than just talk. The stories of T.R. living the strenuous life are nearly endless, but here are a few of my favorites. First, he maintained a strict physical regimen, going so far as to box with a sparring partner in the White House. He referred to boxing as a condensed way to fit exercise into his busy schedule. And T.R. was no boxing hack. He had boxed during college on Harvard's intramural boxing squad. But his pursuit of boxing into his 50s ultimately cost him. In one sparring session, he sustained an injury to his left eye and lost his vision in that eye permanently. Accordingly, I thought it better to acknowledge that I had become an elderly man and would have to stop boxing. I then took up jujitsu for a few years. A second presidential physical pastime Roosevelt enjoyed was called single stick. It is what it sounds like. Two opponents armed with a single stick whack each other with that single stick. Roosevelt and his good friend, Major General Leonard Wood, regularly engaged in this practice. In a nod to the danger of the game, they would wrap pillows around themselves for protection, but that didn't always do the trick. One time, Roosevelt got whacked in the head by General Wood's stick and suffered a large bump in a black eye. No problem for Roosevelt, it was merely evidence of his living the strenuous life. By the way, care to guess which sport Wood played in college? Yup, football. But I saved the best story for last, and I'm going to let another figure that knows a lot about leadership in sports, just like Roosevelt, tell the story. Pat Williams is the vice president of the Orlando Magic, and has written a book on leadership called 21 Great Leaders. He tells my favorite story about TR. Teddy Roosevelt was getting ready to go over to the big auditorium to deliver a speech when he was running for president again in the Bull Moose Party. And when he came out to get in the car, uh, a man who had been trailing him for weeks and months finally caught up with him and fired a shot right into his chest. Well, Roosevelt's speech was in his uh, vest pocket, uh, along with his glasses case, and it, it dulled the blow of the bullet. And they were ro- wanting to rush him to the hospital. Roosevelt says, Take me to the auditorium! And the next thing you know, Roosevelt is standing up at the podium telling the audience exactly what just happened. I've just been shot. The bullet is in me now, so I cannot make a very long speech, but I will try my best. The crowd thought he was joking, but then Roosevelt pulled back his jacket to reveal the blood all over his white shirt. And then he exclaimed, It takes more than that to kill a bull moose. When he telegrammed his wife to assure her that he was okay, he described the bullet wound as, Trivial. Trivial? Are any bullet wounds trivial? Well, maybe when you're Teddy Roosevelt living this strenuous life, some of them are. So what does all this have to do with football? Roosevelt saw football as a way to develop young men in this strenuous life. I believe in rough games and in rough, manly sports. I do not feel any particular sympathy for the person who gets battered about a good deal, so long as it is not fatal. But not everyone agreed. By 1905, the Prohibition movement was gaining momentum. 
No, not the prohibition of alcohol, the prohibition of football. John J. Miller, author of the book The Big Scrum, How Teddy Roosevelt Saved Football, talks about this movement. A lot of people are becoming concerned about the brutality and violence of the sport. They're looking at this and they're, they're, they're saying this is, this is unacceptable in an advanced society like our own. Gladiatorial combat in the Roman amphitheater. And we are not barbarians in 20th century America. Therefore, we should banish football. Newspapers start to write articles about the evils of football. And a Cincinnati newspaper goes so far as to publish a cartoon titled The Grim Reaper Smiles on the Goalpost which depicts the angel of death reclining on the crossbar overlooking a pile of bodies on the field. The people who believed this created a social and political movement. They were led by the president of Harvard University, Charles W. Eliot, uh, but others joined this movement as well. Lots of people in higher education were involved. Newspapers were involved. Muckraking journalists were involved. And this movement is no idle threat. Three major programs, Columbia, Duke, and Northwestern, cancel their program. Harvard is on the verge of doing the same, with Harvard's president referring to the game as more brutalizing than prize fighting, cockfighting, or bullfighting. Even Roosevelt's own Secretary of War, William Howard Taft, a future president, threatens to dismiss any West Point football players if they engage in too much violence on the football field. Some schools even replace football with rugby because rugby was less brutal. So football is facing a genuine crisis of extinction. Could football survive the growing movement to ban the sport? And when we come back, we'll find out the answer to that question. And we're listening to one of our contributors. And he's a U.S. history teacher at Homewood Flossmore High School in the south suburb of Chicago. And that's John Elfner doing the storytelling. When we come back, Roosevelt saves football? More of that story here on Our American Stories. And by the way, to sign up for all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Give us your email address and we'll send you our five best stories each week. Our newsletter, our weekly newsletter. Again, that's OurAmericanNetwork.org. More on Teddy Roosevelt and football with John Elfner after these messages. And this is Our American Stories, and we return to John Elfner and the improbable story of a president and the survival of one of our great national sports. So in 1905, just as Roosevelt was beginning his second term, he saw that football was facing a truly existential crisis. Major schools had already canceled their programs, and the Ivy Leagues, most notably Harvard, were considering canceling their programs. I just want to take a moment to emphasize how important it is that the president of Harvard, Charles Eliot, wanted to cancel his football program. It may be hard to imagine today, but Harvard was once the premier college football program in the country. It was also one of the first, playing its inaugural game in 1873. They won the national championship in 1890, 1898, and again in 1899. 
and Harvard routinely saw their players named as first-team All-American selections. Because professional football was yet to be well-established, the college game received enormous national attention, and Harvard was at the top of that list. When Harvard and Yale played each year, it was simply known as the game. And just two years earlier, Harvard had built a massive stadium at the cost of $200,000. In today's money, that would be about $5 million. Despite that enormous expense, the president of Harvard was eager to ban the game because of its brutality. And if Harvard, one of the oldest and most successful programs in the nation, was to banish its program, many schools would follow, perhaps leading to the end of football entirely. But this is a problem for Roosevelt. Roosevelt believed that college football, brutal as it was, provided a training ground for our nation's young men. John J. Miller explains. It's not merely entertaining, but he thinks it's a positive social good because he thinks sports turn boys into men. They teach things that you cannot learn in classrooms or from books. They teach that when you get knocked down, you should stand back up. They teach you how to win with dignity, how to lose with grace, how to work with teammates, how to take orders from a coach. They teach you so many things that you cannot learn in other ways. Roosevelt firmly believed that developing these qualities as young men would serve these men if they were ever called to war. Pat Williams explains. Truly, I think he saw football as a battle without guns, but I think he also saw that it developed leaders, that it it developed physical and mental toughness in young men. And Roosevelt knew more than a little about battle. In 1898, when the Spanish-American War broke out in Cuba, Roosevelt was serving as assistant secretary to the Navy, perhaps the safest government post in all of Washington, D.C. But Roosevelt didn't want to be in Washington during the war. He quit his cushy post and founded, funded, and recruited his own military unit called the Rough Riders. He craved action, and he wanted to be in the middle of the action. And so when the Spanish-American War broke out, there was nothing that was going to stop T.R. from getting involved. Uh, He raised a troop of men, you know, who he had known for years, some of them from his time out west. And he put this group together, and uh, down they went to Cuba. And uh, he was part of that invasion up to San Juan Hill and was in the middle of the action. There were real bullets being fired, and T.R. was right in the middle of it. Any guesses on what past experience many of those Rough Riders had that qualified them for service in the eyes of Roosevelt? That's right. Football. So Roosevelt had experienced war, and by living the strenuous life before his time with the Rough Riders, he was ready for it. But how would America's young men be prepared for the next war? Roosevelt believed football was a place where the skills needed in war, teamwork, leadership, overcoming obstacles, and even conquering territory could be developed. So here's Roosevelt's challenge. He loves the idea of the strenuous life, not only for himself, but for young men. Football is a part of that and something he supports. But many major universities are getting ready to drop their programs, and his own son had just had his nose broken in a game. What should he do? Well, in true Rooseveltian fashion, TR used his bully pulpit to call the presidents and coaches of the Ivy League schools together to change the rules. Here again is Brian and Gracia. In October of 1905, He calls in Walter Camp, as well as a number of other individuals associated with Harvard and Yale and Princeton. They show up at the White House, they meet for about two hours, and they essentially come out there with an agreement. We are going to do something to clean up football. So that's it, right? Roosevelt saved football. Wrong. 
After the meeting, nothing happened until a pair of highly publicized tragedies occurred on the football field. Right around Thanksgiving, there are two really important games. There's a game between New York University and Union College in which one of the players for Union College, Harold Moore, actually dies from injuries sustained within the game. And on the same day, there's there's a broken nose on a late tackle in the Harvard-Yale game. And it's kind of those two events on the same day that really, really push university leaders when they say, we need to do something about this. And they do. They gather together and start to make major rule changes. And these are the same men that Roosevelt gathered at the White House just months earlier who initially didn't want to make those changes. Roosevelt went so far as to send representatives to the meeting to oversee those changes. The single most important rule change of 1906 was the legalization of the forward pass. The reason why they decided to legalize the forward pass, I think it's going to be safer. They said it's going to open up the field of play. Players are going to be spread out more on the field than they currently are. There's going to be fewer bad tackles. And it worked. Fatalities reduced year after year and made the game safer for the players and also made the game more exciting. Deaths on the field started to drop. The claims of gladiatorial brutality made by the prohibition of football movement, were undercut by many of the rule changes. Not only is the forward pass added, but other rules are introduced to make the game less brutal. They made the personal foul a heavily penalized infraction. They created uh, a neutral zone at the line of scrimmage. And they were all done with the idea toward improving player safety. And the threats to football's existence receded. Schools like Harvard, whose president was a leader of the prohibition of football movement, abandoned the goal of canceling their football program. And the rules committee that changed the rules of football later became what we know today as the NCAA. They continued to tinker with the rules of football over time, making it more and more safe until the time came when a death in football was regarded as a freak accident. So did Teddy Roosevelt really save football? Roosevelt certainly made saving football from the prohibition of football movement a national issue. And without that, who knows how effective that movement might have become. Banning a very popular national sport seems unlikely, but banning the sale and manufacture of alcohol seems far more unlikely, and look where that ended up. Regardless, Coach Ted Venegas still ranks Roosevelt as his favorite president, especially when he is calling a pass play. Let's go Hero Vegas Sky on one. Set, hike. Quarterback drops back. He rolls right. The man down the middle. He sees it. Passes up. It's caught. Caught for the touchdown. And that's why Teddy Roosevelt's my favorite president. And that pass couldn't happen without Teddy Roosevelt. So like I said, Teddy Roosevelt saved football. And great job on that. And that's John Elfner. And he's a U.S. history teacher at Homewood Flossmoor High School. And that's in the south suburbs of Chicago. And John's been teaching history for 20 years to high school students. And my dad was a lifer as a high school history teacher, basketball coach, ended up being a superintendent of schools. But his favorite thing to do was to be on the court with the boys or taking a road trip and seeing American action in history and making it come alive. So I'm grateful to a dad who I got to do that with, field trips to Gettysburg and Vicksburg and the rest. And by the way, that was John Miller's voice you heard, and he's a journalism teacher at Hillsdale College, which sponsors are this days in history. And by the way, football's ready for another big rule change. A lot of people think changing the zone defense will end all these brain injuries. We'll see if that happens, but it's the zone defense more than likely that's the cause of so many of these brain injuries. But what a story this is. The President of the United States intervening to save a game he thought 
prepared boys for war. Teddy Roosevelt story, football story, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories. Valentine's Day began as a feast to celebrate the decapitation of a third century Christian martyr. So how did we get from a beheading to betrothing? Here's Greg Hengler. Today, very little is known about the origins of Valentine's Day, nor the holiday's namesake. What we do know comes from an order of Belgian monks who spent three centuries collecting evidence for the lives of saints from manuscript archives around the world. They were called Bolandists, after Jean Boland, a Jesuit scholar who in 1643 began publishing the massive 68 volumes titled The Lives of the Saints. Since then, Successive generations of monks continued the work until the last volume was published in 1940. The monks dug up every scrap of information about every saint on the liturgical calendar and printed the text arranged according to the saint's feast day. The volume encompassing February 14th contains the story of St. Valentine. In the 3rd century, the Roman Empire was being invaded by the Goths. At the same time, smallpox broke out killing up to 5,000 people a day, which greatly depleted the number of soldiers in the Roman army, by far the most powerful military in the world. Believing that men fought better if they were not married, the ambitious Emperor Claudius II banned marriage in the military. Also, to quell internal rivalries over the previous emperor's assassination, Claudius had the Senate deify him along with the Roman gods and compelled citizens to worship him. Those who refused to worship the Roman gods were considered unpatriotic enemies of the state and were killed. St. Valentine was a priest in central Italy. He risked the emperor's wrath by secretly marrying Christian soldiers to their young brides. When Emperor Claudius got word that Valentine was performing these marriages and refused to deny his conscience and worship pagan idols, Valentine was arrested, brought to Rome, and sentenced to death. While awaiting execution, young couples that he had secretly wed would visit his cell passing him notes and flowers between the bars as symbols of their gratitude. During this time, Valentine also shared the gospel with his judge and jailer, Asterius. Here's Corne Becker, Dean of Regent University. 
so the judge said to him, well, if this indeed is true, I want you to prove it. And he brought one of his adopted daughters who happened to be blind, the one legend says. And what happened is that Valentinus or Valentine here laid his hands upon this girl and she was healed immediately. Valentine and the judge's daughter would fall in love. And on Valentine's last night, he wrote a love letter to the jailer's daughter signing it, from your valentine a tradition was born and to this very day lovers all over the world sign their valentine's day cards with the same signature saint valentine was beaten with clubs and stones and when that failed to kill him he was beheaded outside the flaminian gate on february 14th 269 a.d Although Valentine's Day is universally celebrated like Christmas, those who share the faith of Father Valentine find extra encouragement in this day that celebrates love. Here's Father Dwight Longnecker and Dr. Becker. When we see those hearts on Valentine's Day, we can remember that that heart is, also has some connections back to the heart of Jesus and to God's love for us. And we can remember that the source of all love and the source of self-sacrifice and, and love for each other is rooted in God's love uh, and, in the, and in the witness that St. Valentine actually made for that love. For Christians, marriage is a holy parable of the love of Christ towards His church. It's a visible sermon about what holiness and purity could look like in our lives. We should celebrate what true sacrificial love looks like in a broken world. And ultimately, it should be a day that we celebrate the commitment of Christ who gave His life for His church. It should be a day of evangelism. It should be a day where we celebrate the power of true love to change our world. It is a Christian holiday. In 496 AD, Pope Galatius designated February 14th as St. Valentine's Day. The love connection solidified more than a thousand years after the martyr's death when Geoffrey Chaucer, author of the Canterbury Tales, decreed the February feast of St. Valentine's to the mating of birds. He wrote in his poem, The Parliament of Fowls. For this was on St. Valentine's Day, when every bird comes there to choose his mate. Soon, European nobility began sending love notes during the February bird mating season. Ophelia spoke of herself as Hamlet's Valentine. In the following centuries, English men and women began using February 14th as an excuse to pen verses to their love objects. People often sign Valentine's cards with X's and O's. The Greek name for Christ begins with the letter X. So X became a common abbreviation for the name Christ. This is why Christmas is abbreviated as Xmas. In medieval times, the X was called Christ's cross, which we now call crisscross. This cross was a form of a written oath, similar to the ancient practice of swearing upon a Bible, saying, so help me God, and then kissing the Bible, people would sign a document with an X or place their signature next to the Christ's cross to swear before Christ they would keep the agreement and then kiss it to show their sincerity. 
This practice has come down to us as sign at the X or I swear, cross my heart. This is the origin of signing Valentine's cards and love letters with an X to express a pledge before Christ to be faithful and an O to seal the pledge with a kiss of sincerity. And like the holiday itself, this practice has been transformed into the secular stamp we now know as hugs and kisses. History is intertwined with Valentine's references. Frederick Douglass was born a slave and separated from his mother as a child. All he remembers is her calling him my little Valentine. Theodore Roosevelt's wife and mother both died on Valentine's Day in 1884, and the St. Valentine's Day Massacre occurred in 1929 during the Prohibition era. In the 1840s, Esther A. Howland began selling the first mass-produced Valentine's cards in America. Today, according to the Greeting Card Association, an estimated 145 million Valentine's Day cards are sent each year in America, one billion worldwide, making Valentine's Day the second largest card-sending holiday of the year. Christmas earns the gold medal and Mother's Day gets the bronze. Women purchase approximately 85% of all Valentine's Day cards, but men spend double the amount of money on Valentine's Day gifts than women. The average amount a man spends is $130. Of all the flowers bought on Valentine's Day, 73% of the purchasers are men, and approximately 15% of women send themselves flowers on Valentine's Day. More than 36 million boxes of heart-shaped chocolates are sold, and more than 220 million roses are produced for the holiday in a typical year. Altogether, Americans spend almost $20 billion on Valentine's Day. While the most popular gifts are candy and flowers, nearly 20% of Americans splurge on jewelry, shelling out as much as $4 billion annually. And those who prefer the ultimate romantic gesture are definitely not alone. A recent survey revealed that as many as 6 million couples are likely to get engaged on February 14th. But if you're worried that you can't afford to treat your loved one properly on Valentine's Day, take heart. The poets were right. Love is really all you need. It seems that the saint behind the holiday of love remains as elusive as love itself. Still, as St. Augustine, the great 5th century theologian and philosopher, argued in his treatise on faith and invisible things, someone does not have to be standing before our eyes for us to love them. And much like love itself, St. Valentine and his reputation as the patron saint of love are not matters of verifiable history, but of faith. I'm Greg Hingler, and from all of us here at Our American Stories, have a lovely Valentine's Day. And what a great story, and one need not be a person of faith to understand so much of this and the sacrificial nature of love, true love, in a broken world. And indeed, so many of us celebrate this day. And to be the patron saint of anything, one would want to be the patron saint of love. And by the way, what was interesting is that St. Valentine didn't want to take orders from the emperor. And this country was founded on this notion that we don't pray to our leaders, we pray for our leaders. And this is the difference between America and the rest of the world when our founding documents were signed.
the story of St. Valentine, and the story of Valentine's Day, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And today we bring you a story brought to us by the Coalition for Better Health at Lower Cost. It's the story of Herb and Lorraine Pergozin, and here's Herb. I was born in Hartford, Connecticut. We had a totally different way of living as kids. Nowadays, mothers go with kids to school. Um, they're afraid to let them go themselves. They, st- they stay home, invite friends over. They're very careful. When I was a kid, um, I used to go out by myself. I had all the freedom I wanted. I'd take my bike and I'd go to this park, which was miles away. Um, and I, I never told my mother where, where I was going, which wasn't really good, but uh, she was busy. There was a little bit of neglect there. And we weren't, uh, we didn't have much money. I went to Hebrew school. Um, I had a bar mitzvah. Um, it was a, a religious household. When I left, I, I really dropped that. I really wasn't religious anymore. Um, my wife, uh, after I got married, my wife was kosher because my mother would vi- and father would visit and it was important that they came to a kosher home or they wouldn't eat in our house. Then I went to college. I got into a school called Hillier College in Hartford and uh, Hillier College became the University of Hartford. I grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, where I spent the first 18 years of my life and never moved back after that. I was born in 1942, I'm 77 years old. That was during the war and we lived in an apartment house until I was three as renters and then When I was three, my parents bought this three-family house on Kent Street in Hartford, uh, in the north end of Hartford. I graduated with honors from my high school class. I went to Syracuse. And um, I met my husband when I was 17, still in high school. I had a boyfriend when I was 16, and we broke up, and I was heartbroken. My first boyfriend ever. And so that first love always, you know, is painful when it breaks up, and it usually does. 
Anyway, so I go to, I look for a job and uh, it was at the beach. And I, I saw a job advertised in the newspaper that they were looking for a babysitter. I applied for the job and she, the lady interviewed me and gave me the job to be the babysitter for her two boys. And she was expecting a third and she needed help. And she uh, lived at the beach in the summer, managing a cottage that rented rooms to vacationers. So she needed to help her with the kids. I was it. Turns out that that lady was my husband's sister. And he came to the beach to visit his sister and met the babysitter. Well, what happened was my future sister-in-law ended up being the babysitter with her husband when he came on weekends while Herbie and I went out. <laughs> they stayed home and babysat. <laughs> and so um, I don't know how well that went over, but that's what happened. Anyway, the relationship continued for about four months and Herbie also got me a job. I'm the only one allowed to call him Herbie. It's a family. His family calls him Herbie. Strangers, it's Herb. But it turns out all my friends call him Herbie too because they hear me calling him Herbie and they think that's his name. So he gets called Herbie whether he likes it or not. Anyway, we dated for about four months but we were both rebounding off of previous relationships and we weren't in the right place. And we were awfully young. He was 21, I was only 17. I was a senior in high school. But he got me a job, a winter job, as a cashier in a supermarket because he was the assistant cash department head and he had some pull and got me that job. So he was my boss. Well, that was great until we broke up and stopped dating because Herbie said, I don't want to get serious with anybody and so I don't think we better go out anymore. And so that was the end of that. It was kind of difficult when he'd come to work all dressed up in a you know, sport jacket and nice slacks. I knew he was going out with somebody. And I didn't notice, I mean, I don't think he ever noticed when someone would come to pick me up and take me out after work at nine o'clock. I'd finished work and sometimes I went out afterwards. I don't think he was even aware of it. But I was aware of him. I forgot about him kind of though because I did go off to college after that, after my senior year. Two years later, fast forward, I'm now a sophomore in college and I come home for a vacation and I am dragged to this club meeting that my girlfriend belonged to. She belonged to this club at the Jewish Center called Atid. And um, Herbie was a member of that club and goes to that same meeting. And when we come back, we'll find out what happened after they went to that same meeting, we'll find out what happened to Herb, or maybe I should call him Herbie, and Lorraine Pergozin. And it's a love story, and it's so much more, folks. But it's great hearing from people in their 70s tell their life story, and we do that here on this show because, well, we tell everyone's story. It's so true what Herb was saying about growing up at a different time where you could get on a bicycle and just go a couple of miles to a park. And your parents all, I was lamenting about this with some friends the other night, your parents would say, We'll see you when the sun comes down. And that would be a Saturday. You'd go out at like 8 or 9 in the morning 
and they let you run free with open range for a dozen hours. And I don't think that's uh, available to many kids today, and it's a, it's a sad thing. When we come back, more of Herb and Lorraine Pergozin's story, our Better Health at Lower Cost series, as always brought to us by the great folks at the Stetson Family Office, here on Our American Stories. back with the story of Herb and Lorraine Pergozin here on Our American Stories. They had dated once before, broke up because they were just too young. And after losing touch a couple of years later, they meet again when Lorraine was dragged to a club meeting at the local Jewish center. Here's Lorraine. And he sees me there. And now I look a little different. I'm a college sophomore and I'm more sophisticated. And he says, is that you, Lorraine? And I said, yes, and you remember my name. He has a terrible time remembering names, always has. But he remembered mine, and so I said, you remember my name? And he says, I wouldn't forget your name. Anyway, we reconnected, and he asked if he could take me home that night from that meeting, and I decided to play it cool, and I said, no, I came with my girlfriend. I better go home with her. She'll take me home. And he said, well, could I have your address? And I said, okay, if you want it. He says, yeah, I'll write to you. We'll stay in touch. So I gave him my address and never heard from him. A few months later, I come back. I'm walking past this kosher supermarket. It wasn't even in my neighborhood. Don't ask me what I was even doing there. Out comes Herbie's mother and she knows me. She spent part of the summer with me when I was the babysitter and she knew me well. And she said, hi, Lorraine. She said, does Herbie know you're in town? And I said, I don't think so. And then she said, oh, okay. And then she has a conversation with me and then she runs home and tells him. So I come home and the next day I'm ready to leave for school again, I've got my suitcase in my hand and the phone rings. And I think, should I answer it or should I go outside and wait for my ride that's going to come pick me up and take me to school? Well, I, I answered it. It was him. And he said, why didn't you tell me you were going to be in town? And I said, why didn't you write? Anyway, there was nearly a letter there by the time I got to school, he wrote so fast, I got a letter right away. And I invited him for um, a special weekend that they were having at Syracuse, and he came. That was it. We fell in love once and for all, and now I was 19 and he was 23, and we never dated anyone else again. Two years after that, we were married. He graduated from college the day before our wedding. 
the same, that was a very busy weekend. He graduated on a Saturday, we got married on a Sunday. We were married June 9th, he graduated June 8th, and we went on our honeymoon, and that was it. We never, ever returned to Connecticut except to visit. I graduated, I went to work for GE because um, uh, we got married, she was still going to Syracuse University, uh, so <clears throat> I went to work I, I applied to the only two companies that would hire somebody who was a math major. There was General Electric and Carrier Air Conditioning. So uh, General Electric gave me a job. I went to work for them. And uh, they said, well, uh, we have a job as a programmer, computer programmer. And I said, what is a computer and what is a programmer? I needed the job, so I took it regardless. So then I, I learned how to program on the job and the first thing we worked on was an air weapons control system. Uh, it was always a military type system. Um, the way that worked is uh, you, um, you, you, got, you use radar to track an aircraft and the information about that aircraft would be sent to a computer and the computer would determine is it friendly or is it, uh, uh, you know, somebody, some aircraft you had to shoot down <laughs> and our enemy aircraft. We would make that determination and uh, we would send messages to shoot it down if we had to. I was uh, transferred to Florida that worked at Cape Kennedy and I wrote a program to interface with the command and service module and the lunar excursion module on the uh, Saturn rocket, which is the one that went to the moon. Uh, and then Kennedy died. I was at work when it happened. Everybody knows where they were when it happened. Um, so Kennedy died and Johnson took over as president and um, he moved the Manned Spacecraft Center to Houston, Texas, because he was a Texan. <laughs> so uh, Cape Kennedy, of course, still was there, and they launched the, the missiles from there. However, the Manned Spacecraft Center, where they controlled the whole thing, was in Houston. Herbie was working on the Apollo project, and he was bona fide programmer then, doing some very important things. We lived there a year, but we didn't like Texas. Herbie decided to interview and on another job. He'd been with GE for three years now to see what he would be worth on the open market as a programmer. And there was an ad in the paper, and we were on our way to go swimming at a friend's house. And they invited us for dinner and to go to the pool. And I had on my maternity bathing suit because now I was pregnant with our second child. And um, my little son was in his swim trunks. And my husband wore a suit to do this interview, left me in the car downstairs. So he goes up to do the interview and comes back down and says, they want to talk to you. I said, me? <laughs> Look at me. Anyway, up I went, and they wined and dined me. Oh my, did they knock themselves out to try to 
get me to get him to accept this job. It was in California. And uh, he had been to California for uh, jobs for GE that were debugging jobs, emergency kind of jobs, and he'd come here and work through the night, sometimes debugging programs and stuff like that. He saw the mountains and the climate and he loved it. Anyway, I was sold by that, but I was especially sold by the 27% raise in salary they offered him and the depressed area they were sending us to, which meant everything was cheap. And boy, that's what we needed, cheap. <laughs> cheap but high raise in money. We took, he took the job. And off we went to California. And we lived in Lompoc, near Vandenberg Air Force Base, where we stayed for only a year because it was Federal Electric Corporation that hired him. They became part of ITT. ITT is a very uh, reputable, good business, good company. Federal Electric was flying by its shoestrings. And there was one week where they said, sorry, we can't pay you this week. Your pay will come next week. You can't do that to somebody. So Herbie says, I gotta get out of here. So I said, we talked it over and we, he decided, I have to give them their year. I'll stand the year. Otherwise we have to pay back all our moving expenses and they moved us white glove and I can't afford that. We're gonna stay the year then I'll get another job. So that's what we did. And by now our, our, our daughter was born. And then we get to Santa Monica, that's where we lived. And by now our children went to nursery school there and I got very interested in that and decided to go into elementary teaching because the director of the nursery school had us come in and serve and she said, you'd make a great elementary or nursery school teacher, you should think about this. And so I did. That's just what happened. And you've been listening to Herb and Lorraine Pergozin. And what a life. What a life led beautifully. They just uh, fall in love and they get married. I mean, he graduates one day, he's getting married the next. How often does that happen these days? These are such big events now. And then they just, they just got on with their life and moved about from job to job, working at Cape Kennedy on the Saturn rocket, but not really wanting to live in Houston, looking for something better, looking for the right place, and ultimately landing in Santa Monica, California, of all places, having been born where they were born, and about to enter a new chapter in their life when we continue more of Herb and Lorraine's story, Herbie and Lorraine's story, here on Our American Stories, our Better Health at Lower Cost series continues And as always, it's brought to us by the great folks at the Stetson Family Office. More of Our American Stories after these commercial messages.
And we're back with Our American Stories and picking up with the story of Lorraine and Herb Fergozen. When we last left off, Lorraine had just gotten her California teaching credential, and this seemed like, well, just an ordinary and really decent and good American life. But then, well, some things changed, and as all of our lives can, they can change suddenly. Dramatic events come upon us, some planned, some not. Before we begin this next block, we warn you that some of this next segment contains some pretty heavy material. Here's Lorraine. I had applied all over in the area, hoping to get a job there. Nobody answered me. One week after school started, I get a call from the very school district where my children are going to school, Orchid School District. They need a kindergarten teacher. My specialty, I was trained in that because Pacific Oaks, where I went to school, did early childhood education. They mainly trained teachers from kindergarten to third grade. That's just where I fell in. I had student teaching in kindergarten and first grade. I got hired. I stayed with that job for 33 years, and we lived in in, uh, Santa Maria for 48 years. We still have a house there, but we live part-time here. So um, anyway, our children went through the Santa Maria schools. My daughter met a very sad end. She, um, She had a hard time. At 16, she attempted suicide, and she just, felt kind of worthless and sad and friendless and she jumped off the third floor of a parking lot of the mall in Santa Maria onto the pavement and she in a sitting position so she cracked her pelvis into a thousand pieces and they put her back together and she survived. Dr. Joe Amata, I'll never forget him, he was the only one that knew how to rotate the pelvis and put it back in position before it healed. They did this fast before it could cement itself in the wrong position or she'd be sitting on that rough edge of the pelvis her whole life and never walk straight. And she was on her way, she was okay. And she went to uh, City College in uh, Santa Barbara. They had a school for training hotel management and restaurant management. She went through the two-year program but didn't receive the certificate. The teacher said, you need another year. You're not ready and you're immature. And that broke her heart and she wouldn't do it. She wouldn't do that extra year he said she required. All the other kids were graduating. He wouldn't let her. She just quit and went to work in restaurants. But she really did know what she was doing. And she advised in one restaurant that they better clean their machines. And when they didn't, they got shut down by the health department. She was right, but they weren't listening to her because she was 20 years old. So no satisfaction that she was right if they didn't listen. Anyway, she uh, had a boyfriend who wasn't the best influence, and they secretly ran away together. She took my husband's truck and she told us they were going to the flea market to sell, you know, just use things that you sell at a flea market. And don't be surprised if we leave early in the morning because, and I pack up bags because I'm bringing all my junk to the flea market to sell it with Jamie. So we said, okay. Well, she never came back. She was leaving. 
and they made a wrong turn in the road. They should have gone to Tahoe, where Jamie's parents had a condo, and instead they went to Reno. And they got a job at the Sands Hotel, both of them. He became a sous chef there, and she uh, was a waitress. And she worked for Tony Romas in that hotel. And the, she didn't get along with the cook. She was feisty. She knew her business, as I said, whether or not that her, her instructor taught her better than he thought he did. And um, he didn't like her demands and that she wanted things on time and she wanted the orders right and all this stuff. And he was not sane. And he went after her. And when she got promoted to, she was a bus girl. She got promoted to a full-fledged waitress after only a few weeks and she was very excited and she was going out with her friends to celebrate and he wormed his way into that group and said, where are you going? And he was there. They went to Shakey's Pizza and he followed her after. She was going to go back to the Sands where Jamie was still working on a night shift and he got her, she stepped out of her truck got her out of that truck, dragged her off, and that was the end of her. He, he beat her, he raped her, and he knifed her 11 times. Four of those wounds were fatal. Any one of four would have killed her. And then he left her in a garbage dump. And she was missing, and Jamie wondered why she never came to get him. And there was a police report about someone being found in this garbage dump, but the person looked to be 35 years old. Well, the bugs had, you know, it was buggy and hot in the summer, and she didn't look her age, but it was her. And um, there was a trial, and the guy was caught right away. He's in jail for the rest of his life. There was a mistrial or he would have been put to death because they have the death penalty in Nevada. So we've been through some grief. She would be 53 now. I've often wondered what would have become of her had she been allowed to live. That was, I get very emotional when I talk about that. But that was the worst thing that ever happened to me in my life. And it happened a long, long time ago, but I really haven't been able to deal with it. I've dealt, I've tried and I've thought I dealt with it because I let it all out, kind of. But over the years, whenever I talk about it, um, I get very emotional. My neurologist sent me to a psychologist that does testing. And he tested me um, and he determined that I had PTSD. So I didn't do anything about that. And I'm not going to a psychiatrist. Um, I'll deal with it in a, you know, the way I'm dealing with it. So um, he also said, that I had kind of a halfway to, uh, to Alzheimer's.
And what a story you're hearing and what a sad and tragic turn of events for this family. She will be 53 now, Lorraine said, and I often wonder what would have become of her if she'd been allowed to live. That was the worst thing that ever happened to me, confessed Herb. And though it happened a long, long time ago, I still haven't dealt with it. And now we learn, and he learns from a doctor, that not only does he have PTSD, that just doesn't happen to soldiers. It happens all the time to ordinary people who experience great trauma and then don't deal with it. He also found out that he was halfway on the road to Alzheimer's. That is a really rough day. When we come back, more of this family story, Herb and Lorraine Pergozin's story, and again, part of our Better Health at Lower Cost series, brought to us by the Stetson Family Office. More of this remarkable and this sad story, and what happens next, how they move forward, here on Our American Stories. And we continue here with our American stories and the story of Herb and Lorraine Pergrosen. While having to deal with the PTSD that came with losing his daughter, Herb and Lorraine were also about to be faced with some life-altering news. My husband, he's almost 82. When he was 78, he has epilepsy. We were on a plane... I was uh, sitting back, had my eyes closed, and I used to get these kind of dizzy spells, at least I thought that they were, occasionally. And I go to bed, go on the bed, and it would be over in a very short time. And Lorraine said, you just had a seizure, because she noticed that my mouth was contorting. It only lasted a few seconds. I didn't know it was a seizure. When we got home, I got a uh, neurologist. And the neurologist did all the stuff, a brain scan and all the stuff. I wasn't happy with, the, with him. The new one, when I went to, she put me on a different medication. And that one worked fine. And I was, I was free of seizures. And then I started to get a little hostile, and I was hostile to my wife. I mean, I never did anything like hurt her or anything like that, but I wasn't pleasant. So she said, that's the medicine. And she was going to put me on this other medication. And that's when this whole incident happened. And I can't blame the doctor because it was totally my fault. I was pretty stupid. Uh, in the way I handled the 
change from one medication to the other. So she changed the medication, but he, we didn't understand how to wean off of one and onto the other. And there's a very gradual change that has to happen. We just didn't understand. We didn't make sure we understood. It was our fault. We didn't make certain that we had it straight. And we didn't know how important it was either. And he had a violent reaction. And the next morning, he couldn't get out of bed. And I had to call 911 because I couldn't lift him. I couldn't drive him to the hospital myself. I called 911, they came and got him and took him by ambulance to the hospital emergency room where they stabilized him. They ca we called the neurologist, she got him in that afternoon, but the damage was done. That caused brain damage right there. And he has never quite been the same since. He was like wobbly, unable to stand up. I mean, he, it, was, it was physical, but he um, improved rapidly. Then he began to notice uh, word lapses. He had aphasia of a kind where he couldn't uh, remember words. I noticed that I go out to the garage to do something and I forget why I went out there. So I come back in the house and I think for a while and then I remember and I go out to the garage and do what I went out there for. And I was told that, you know, old people, that's what happens, so, because I'm old. <laughs> um, so, but it didn't happen that the way it happened to me, the extent that it happened. I was very scared because I've seen or I know about people with Alzheimer's and I couldn't survive with that. I told my wife that if I get Alzheimer's, I don't want to live like that. Um, I talked about, you know, ending my life if I get that, uh, where I start losing everything, because you lose everything. You can't even swallow, you can't, you, you forget how to do that. Um, so when I got the diagnosis, um, I, I was petrified. Um, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, so that's how, that's how I felt. I, I thought I was done for. You know, I didn't know how long I had. I was terrified, absolutely terrified. And I just, I just took the bull by the horns and we went right with it, with everything. We threw everything we could at it to fight it. And whatever advice we were given, we did it, no matter how bizarre or how, how difficult a life change it was. The neurologist worked with him and it looked like dementia was threatening. All of a sudden, she, I don't know what prompted her, but she told us about Dr. Shirzai. Why don't we consider Dr. Shirzai's approach? We, and he had made an appointment with Dr. Shirzai already, but it was a three month wait. Well, in that three months, the minute I read the book and I told him about it, we went right on that diet. And he went on that diet strictly 
Once we made the decision, I threw out everything in the house that was the wrong food. I had a party for all my friends to come and raid my freezer, 12 of them. When they came over, I said, I'm cooking dinner, we're having prime rib and we're having uh, tri-tip, all these great things in my freezer and I'm gonna cook everything I've got that I'm not supposed to eat. You come over and eat it. <laughs> and we'll eat salad or something else. But you guys come and enjoy the food and help yourself to everything in that freezer that we can't eat, that is not vegan. They did, they cleaned me out. And anything they didn't take, I took to the food bank, all the canned goods and stuff. And we've been vegan ever since. And no sugar, absolutely no sugar. We see sugar in a label, we will put it back on the shelf and it won't get sold to us. The main thing is, it has to be a plant-based diet. And that's the basic thing that a vegan diet is. If it wasn't for my wife, she keeps me on it. I can't stray. I mean, I don't want to, but sometimes there's temptation. I don't uh, give in to it. And sometimes I see something that's kind of bad, I shouldn't have it. And I'll say, oh, I can have this. It's, she'll say, no, you can't. <laughs> and then, then I don't. So if it wasn't for Lorraine, I'd be in big trouble. I'm really lucky. I'm really lucky. He improved. My husband showed remarkable improvement from that diet. And Dr. Shursai's book explained, we did everything in the book. Uh, 20 minutes a day of uh, meditation, it's a de-stressor, it's wonderful. It's so relaxing, twice a day. Exercise, that we do rigorously. I walk five miles a day. He does great with that, and he got in such great shape. We both lost tons of weight. He looks wonderful. He's all muscle now. He's terrific. And we do cognitive stimulation. We play bridge and we take lessons. Now I take it very seriously, and we play about three days a week, um, and lessons two days a week. We also do an exercise that Dr. Shirzai added, and I was kind of resistant to this because we already spend so much time on this program, but he said to pick an article in a magazine, underline 30 words in that article. He's doing an article, I'm doing an article, separate magazines, exchange magazines. This whole exercise takes one hour. He's to memorize thir the 30 words I have underlined, and I am to memorize the 30 words he has underlined, and we are to repeat these back to each other after an hour is up. From beginning to end of this process, from, from choosing the article to memorizing it, finishing the memorizing. Well, yesterday, he was able to do 26 words. I could only do 28. So I'm, I'm quite a good measure against him. I don't have the issues he has, but look where he is. So I started out getting six. And then you went to 13. Yeah. And then you went to 15 for a few times. And then you jumped to 21, and then you jumped to 23, and then you jumped to 25, and now you went to 26. 
30 is the most you can get. Yeah. I only underlined so, 30. So that's a real step forward that I could do that. I'm, I'm not going backwards, I'm going forward. And that, I was pretty scared, I gotta tell you. And I feel a lot better now. I feel pretty good about that. And you've been listening to Herb and Lorraine Pergozin's story. And after living through what is hands down the toughest thing any married couple can live through, which is the death of a child. My goodness, he then had to get the diagnosis Herb did, which was that he was losing his mind. That is, Alzheimer and dementia had kicked in, and he was halfway there. I thought I was done for, he said. I didn't know how long I had. And it looked like dementia was... Well, it was going to destroy everything. But then she was told about the Shurzai's. And by the way, we've told Dean and Aisha Shurzai's story. And their book was a Blue Zone book. And it was all about diets and living styles and lifestyles that end up getting people to much better living at much lower cost and much longer living uh, at the same time. And what do you know? His life gets turned around by diet, by exercise, by meditation and of course that memorization and cognitive wordplay engaging the mind Herb and Lorraine Pergrosen's story our Better Health at Lower Cost series as always brought to us by the great folks at the Stetson Family Office here on Our American Stories